Our text tonight is 1 Timothy 3. If you have a Bible, you're welcome to open it up. It's also going to be projected on the wall. But let's hear from God's Word. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This is the word of the Lord. Let's uh, take a minute and pray. Ask God to help us understand this portion of his word well. Father, we come before you now and ask that you would come and work through your word. You've done this now in the church for age upon age, and you continue to do it here tonight. Lord, help us to believe that. Help us to understand and to know that no matter what's happening in our life right now, when we have struggles and problems, when we're feeling dark and depressed and sad, when we're feeling um, like we're struggling with doubts and worries, or whether we're feeling elated and happy and jubilant. Lord, no matter where we are ourselves emotionally or spiritually, you come and meet with us each week when we gather together as a people and express our need to you and admit that we are flawed, that we are hopeless in and of ourselves, that we can't fix the problems in our lives, that we don't know what's going to happen to us, that we're not in control, Lord. Lord, we admit those things to you tonight, and we ask that you would remind us that you are in control. And not only are you in control, but you're also good. You're, in fact, exceedingly good and loving. You're gracious to us, your people. So remind us of that tonight, God. Help us to believe that the gospel changes everything, that it is true, that it is meaningful, that the message of the death and resurrection of Jesus really can and does transform individual lives all the time all over the world. We ask for that process to take place here today, God. We ask that you would use these words from the Apostle Paul to equip us to believe, to believe in spite of many things that would clamp down on our faith, to believe that you love us and care for us deeply and that you have proven that to us in your son, Jesus. So Holy Spirit, come and move in this place, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So tonight, as I mentioned earlier, is our birthday. Christ Church is one today, and we're very excited about that. Uh, it, it is not an easy thing to begin a church. The group of us that started this church have worked very hard and prayed a lot and um, thought a lot about how best to honor God and love people in the name of Jesus in this part of San Antonio, and we're thankful that he's brought us this far. And so what I want to do tonight is take a couple of minutes um, in the sermon just refocusing us a little bit on why we're here after all, on the vision of Christ Church San Antonio, on what we're doing here as a young, new, upstart church in the northeast suburbs of San Antonio, Texas. Why do we exist? What has God put us here for? That's what I want us to think about for a few minutes. From the very beginning of our church's life, our main vision, our main principle of belief and faith is that the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Christianity changes everything. It completely revolutionizes and transforms the lives of those who trust that that message is true. The gospel changes everything. That is our, it's our hedgehog concept. You might not know what that means. Jim Collins is a business 
uh, consultant, and he wrote a book a number of years ago called Good to Great. And in that book, he examines a number of very, very successful and thriving entrepreneurial enterprises and big businesses. And he, in that book, is trying to discern what makes businesses great, not just good, but great. And he says one thing that makes businesses great is when a business has what he calls a hedgehog concept. That comes from an ancient Greek parable about the fox and the hedgehog. The fox, the parable says, is sleek and cunning and able to do many different things, but the hedgehog is slow and plodding, but determined to reach one single goal. The point is that a great company, according to Collins, and really you can extend that to mean any great organization is laser focused on achieving or reaching or communicating one single focus or goal. Our single focus or goal here at Christ Church is that the gospel of Jesus changes everything. It makes all the difference in the lives of us together as a family and in the lives of you as individuals, whether you're a believer in Jesus or you're not yet a believer in Jesus. And so the way I want to approach that idea tonight is by taking some of the ideas from a man named Ray Orland, who's written a wonderful book called The Gospel. And there's actually a number of copies of it out on the info table that we would love for you to take a copy of if you're new with us. That will help you know kind of who we are and what we're all about. It's a short book. You can read it in just one sitting. Would love for you to have a copy. But one way he describes a healthy church and a church that believes the gospel changes everything is that a church like that has both gospel doctrine doctrine and gospel culture. Gospel doctrine and gospel culture. By that, Ortland means that the gospel, the good news of Christianity, is being taught and preached and believed in a certain congregation. It has gospel doctrine, but it also has gospel culture. The gospel is actually being lived out and thought about in people's day-to-day lives, and they're more and more beginning to orient and live their lives in light of what the gospel says to us, of what the good news is. That creates a, a gospel culture where people are being individually shaped and formed by the gospel, and their relationships are being shaped and formed by the gospel. A healthy church, he says, a gospel-centered church, a church that is following the mission of Jesus is a church where there is both gospel doctrine and gospel culture. And I want you to understand that gospel culture is actually much more difficult to hone in on to achieve, to, to see implemented as the Holy Spirit works among us than just preaching gospel doctrine. And the reason that gospel culture is so much more difficult for us is because we still by nature, even if we're believers in Jesus, are in many ways so self-centered. And the reason gospel culture is actually so important is because one of the main criticisms of those who aren't followers of Jesus today that they have of Christianity is look at the churches that are formed who claim to believe this teaching. The people in these churches are, they're not loving and kind, they're arrogant, they're abrasive, they're rude, they're impatient, they're mean. They aren't very thoughtful. They're not very willing to see different points of view. They are selfish. They're jealous. They're gossipy. They're miserly. They're abrasive. They're hypocritical. They're quick to anger. They're unloving. You see, in many ways, the way that we interact 
together as a congregation, the way our culture shapes itself is, is how people will field test whether the doctrine is true or not. The best, the best apologetic, the best proof that the doctrines of these ancient scriptures of Christianity, that the teachings of Jesus are true, is by how those who claim to believe them live those teachings out and treat other people. So gospel doctrine is essential, but gospel culture is also incredibly important. Christ Church from the very beginning has sought to be a place that both proclaims lovingly and boldly gospel doctrine and seeks to cultivate gospel culture together. And so what I want to do tonight is look at this passage from 1 Timothy 3 that David read for us, because I think, especially in the images that the Apostle Paul uses here to talk about the church, we see what both gospel doctrine and gospel culture, when it's combined together, can form in a given collection of people who are trying their best to follow Jesus, even though we mess up all the time. And so two big points that I want to talk about tonight that go under those two titles. First, I want to show you gospel doctrine, why that's important. And second, gospel culture. Paul talks about them here in 1 Timothy 3. The first thing you need to get, though, is that gospel doctrine is necessary and essential that we talk about, that we proclaim, that we hone in on each and every week. The message, the news of Christianity is super, super important if we're going to be a healthy church as we age. What is the gospel? The gospel is news. It's not advice. It's news about events that have happened. God became one of us in the person of Jesus Christ. He lived a perfect life, and then he willingly sacrificed himself on a cross. And when Jesus dies on the cross, the scriptures tell us that God is punishing the brokenness and the rebellion and the selfishness and the evil of this world, not on those who commit those sins and those atrocities, and not on those people who actually were selfish, but on Jesus, the innocent one who takes the place of people who were rebels against God's good kingship. Jesus died on the cross for our rebellion to be forgiven by God the king. And then he was raised again from the dead the third day. That is the gospel. It's the news about what's happened to Jesus. That news, when it's believed, changes your life. It makes a difference in everything about your life. And Paul says here in this text that the church of Jesus is above all else to proclaim that message. Where do we see that? Well, we see it in verse 15 where we read that Paul's telling Timothy here how we should behave in the household of God, the church, which is the church of the living God. And then look at what he says, a pillar and buttress of truth. The church, he says, is a pillar and buttress of truth. Now, there's a lot of questions we need to ask about that. The first one is, what does he mean by truth? If it's a pillar and buttress of truth, what is the truth? Well, he tells us in the very next verse, verse 16. And this is a little bit opaque, but what he's saying here is that the truth he's referring to in verse 15 is the gospel that I just recounted for you. This is a, this is a very, very old song an old hymn that was used in the first century church that Paul takes a piece of here and puts in his letter to Timothy. And each of these lines is about Jesus. It's about his life, his death. That's what it means when it says vindicated by the spirit, his resurrection, and that message going forth throughout the world as Jesus has ascended into heaven. The truth that Paul says the church is a pillar and buttress of is the truth of the gospel. It's the good news of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. 
Don't miss that. If the church of Jesus is to be anything, if we are to be anything, we are to be a place and a people where that message receives a central place among us. I mean, what does a pillar do after all? A pillar holds something up, correct? And what does a buttress do? A buttress firms something up. It protects something, correct? And so what Paul's saying here is that the church, as an organization, the church as a gathering of people, exists to firm up and to show off the truth of the gospel. The church exists to put on display the news about what has happened to Jesus because that news changes everything about people's lives and eventually everything about this entire universe. That's what the church is for. The church exists to proclaim gospel doctrine. I watched, uh, no, I read an article this week about uh, Shaquille O'Neal famous NBA basketball player, and it was this great sort of running diary that interviewed him and a number of other players when he was with the Orlando Magic, a basketball team that he was drafted by in the early 90s. And the guy that wrote this piece um, interviewed a bunch of the relevant players, and basically they got really, really good because Shaquille O'Neal was such a dominant force as a basketball player. But after he had been with the Magic for four years... He suddenly and somewhat surprisingly spurned them when he became a free agent and signed with the hated Los Angeles Lakers. I think we can all agree that they're hated. Um, He signed with the Los Angeles Lakers for what was then the biggest contract in the history of basketball. And the most fascinating thing about the whole article to me was that in the next few years, the magic as a basketball team and really as an organization completely fell apart. They lost the centerpiece of the entire organization. And when they lost him, all the other players began drifting elsewhere. The organization lost its way. And to this day, they've never really had much success. You see, that's what Paul's saying here about the gospel. If the church loses the gospel, loses the centrality of the message of what happened to Jesus, then everything else is going to go away along with it. The church exists to hold that up. If the church isn't holding that up as central and primary, if something cuts the pillar out, then as the central and primary thing squashes to the ground, so does everything else as well. Another illustration to make that point. Nate, my oldest son, has really been into Legos lately, which is why I have injuries all over the bottom of my feet. Um, I step on them all the time. And um, over Christmas, we bought him, no, my dad, this was my dad, bought him this like four million piece Lego thing. I mean, it is huge. It, it might fit into this sanctuary. It's that big. Um, and Nate and I spent hours working on this Lego monstrosity, this huge castle. And we got like 90% of the way through this thing. And the whole castle is designed to where there's this, there's this, it's cool. There's a drawbridge and the doors open up and there's this like this huge dragon. And the dragon's head pops out as the doors open up to kind of scare people that are going to enter, I guess. But if you don't put the dragon in the right spot, like the entire edifice crumbles. And it took us about three attempts to figure that out. And the first time we, I mean, we're like 90% of the way done. We're hours in and Nate and I kind of have the piece and we're about to put the piece in there, but my hand slips and I'm not kidding. Like 500 Lego pieces shattered all over the place and tears formed up in my eyes very quickly. And Nate and I, we were sad for a moment, but we shook it off and eventually got back to it. We realized this is the, this is the central piece in this entire 
humongous castle. If this isn't put in right, nothing else is going to fit either. That's what the gospel, the message of the gospel is for the church. Christ church is called to be a place where the gospel receives the supreme and central place among us. That is what we are going to talk about. The news, the truth about the death and resurrection of Jesus, which pays for our sin and gives us new life, is what we will teach. It is what we will proclaim. It is what we will be about. It is the centerpiece of our message, the centerpiece of our life, the centerpiece of our doctrine. Let me just try and be very clear. Christ Church is not a church that will be known by what we are against. Christ Church does not want to be a church that will be known for some side issue. Yeah, an important issue, but it's not what we want to be known by. We do not want to be known as the church that loves to talk about Calvinism and make people Calvinists all the time. And if you don't know what that is, then that's evidence that we're doing our job. We do not want to be known as the church that, you know, sings just hymns or sings just praise songs. We don't want to be known as the political church. We don't want to be known as the homeschool church or the public school church. We don't want to be known by any side issue that so often derails and distracts Christians. Are those issues important? Yes. Does the gospel impact those issues? Yes. Is it okay to talk about them? Yes. But that is not where we are placing our banner. We place our banner on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Gospel doctrine. That is what the church exists to be a pillar for. We need gospel doctrine if we're going to be a church that Jesus uses in mighty ways here. But, secondly, we also need gospel culture. And this might strike you. I would even go so far as to say that preaching the truth of the gospel is not enough to make a healthy church. Um, the weight of New Testament teaching clearly leads us to that conclusion. Teaching and preaching the truth, staking everything on the centrality of the gospel message is essential, but it is not enough. There also must be a commitment to cultivating gospel culture. And you really can't have one without the other. If there's no gospel culture, then there's something wrong with the gospel doctrine. And if there's no gospel doctrine, there's not going to be any gospel culture either. When the gospel is a pillar and a buttress of the truth in a church, the Holy Spirit inevitably uses that teaching and preaching to create a new culture among us, to change the way we relate to one another and to the world. And we see that in this passage with some of the other images that Paul uses to describe the church. He says the church is a pillar, right? But he said right before that in verse 15 that the church is the household of God. You see that there? The actual word is family. The church is the family of God, the house of God. And what the gospel says is that when you believe in what has happened to Jesus and believe that his life and death and resurrection apply to you, that you can be forgiven, that you can experience change, you, you enter, if I, if I can put it forcefully, you enter into the emotional life of God the Father in a new way. No, God, if you're a Christian, is not your grumpy grandfather. God, if you're a Christian, is not your disinterested uncle. God is your loving father who in Jesus at every moment delights in you, his child. You know, before I was a parent, I would serve from time to time, not very often, in our church in Philadelphia uh, in the nursery. And uh, 
oftentimes I would have to, not oftentimes, like twice maybe, I changed a diaper before I was a parent. And uh, I intellectually loved all those little kids. Praise God for those children. I'm sure they're all doing great now. But I did not want any part of their diaper, especially if it was numero dos, you know. And uh, it was both times, of course. And uh, I, I just couldn't stand the experience of, of taking care of this other, this other parent's kid. And I was like, what am I doing this for? But, but then I became a dad. And I, I wouldn't say I love changing diapers, but my view of it completely changed when it was my own child. I saw the point of it. I saw, I saw the need for it. And I, I loved my child even as I was doing it. And in a sense, that's, that's kind of what happens to you when you become a follower of Jesus. You enter into God's family. You become his child. He delights in you. He even, he even delights in getting involved in the messes that you make in your life. And fixing them and changing them through his Holy Spirit. And because you are now a part of God's family, the household of God, you have, you have had God's DNA injected into you, so to speak. And the DNA that God has injected into you is a DNA of love. It's a DNA of caring for other people more than you care for yourself. Gospel culture fundamentally is a culture of love. It's a culture where the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, is, is writ large throughout our congregation. And so if the gospel is really being proclaimed, if the gospel is really being taught, then the gospel is going to be working itself out in our relationships and in the relationships you have with people in your life that aren't in this building right now. And it's going to be teaching you to love them. And when that sort of climate, when that sort of atmosphere, when that sort of culture that we get from God begins to form among us, then you see change begin to happen. Now, what might that look like practically in the life of a place like Christ Church San Antonio? When there is both gospel doctrine and gospel culture, what do you see? Just a couple of examples real quickly. You see a church where there is a normal and regular willingness to admit failure to confess sin, and to work in repentance without a fear of being ostracized or condemned or judged. That happens only when people more and more see that they are made right, not because of anything that they've done or haven't done, but because of what God has done for them in Jesus. That people are accepted by God, not because of their own morality or goodness or achievements, but because of Jesus' goodness and achievements for us. A church that has gospel culture has that sort of atmosphere. Another thing, you see gospel culture in a church when there's patience with people who are in need of change. Because people are not simple. People are complex. And change is a very, very difficult thing. And in a church where love rules the day, and in a church where the gospel is being proclaimed and lived in light of, you see a church that's patient, patient with people who have significant issues in their life that are in need of change. You see gospel culture in a church when you see a church where there is an understanding that both non-Christians, people that aren't following Jesus, and people who are following Jesus almost always come to know Jesus through a process over time and not through a one-time experience. Sure, one-time experiences happen, but almost always it takes regular, multiple exposures to the gospel for it to really sink in. And so a church where there's a gospel culture is a church, again, that understands that change is a process, not necessarily an event, and it waits it out with people. 
A church where there's gospel culture is a church where sin that subverts gospel culture is not tolerated any more than irreligious sins. What do I mean by that? Oftentimes in churches, religious sins are seen, as Jerry Bridges has said, as acceptable sins. But when a church is loving one another well, when a gospel culture is being infused in a place, those sorts of acceptable sins are repented of and wiped out of our congregation just as much as the unacceptable, irreligious, pagan sins are. A church where there's a gospel culture is a church that does not have gossip. A church that does not have partiality. A church that does not have a condemning judgmentalism. A church that doesn't slander and act maliciously behind other people's backs. It's a church where religious sins are repented of just as much and even more profoundly than irreligious sins. Because everyone needs the gospel, whether they're religious or irreligious. And lastly, a gospel culture is created in a church when the church has a prayerful and radical willingness to risk. To risk for the sake of the kingdom. When people are living in gospel freedom and when a church is, is loving gospel culture, they don't settle for maintenance-driven ministry. They don't settle with just maintaining the borders that already exist. They don't settle with making one another a little bit happier or a little bit more comfortable. No, they are willing to push the kingdom of God forward, to expand it. They're willing to take risks because they know that no matter what happens, failure is okay because Jesus loves us. Those are just a few of the examples of what happens when a church not only proclaims the gospel, but when a church lives in light of the gospel. You see both gospel doctrine and gospel culture. You know, God actually assures us in this very passage that that is exactly what will happen to churches that are faithful. And he assures us there when he tells us that the church is the household of God, which is the church. Now, there's no reason for Paul to throw this phrase in there. You know, you think about that. It just seems totally superfluous. But he says, the church is the household of God, which is the church of the living God. Why would Paul throw that in? He puts it in there to remind us that a church becomes a household, a family. Gospel culture is created. And a church becomes a pillar and buttress of the truth. Gospel doctrine is taught and defended. Only when the church realizes that the church is God's church. It's not our church. It's not my church. It's the church of the living God, not the dead God, not the stagnant God, not the absentee God. Christ Church San Antonio belongs to the living, eternal God who dwells in unapproachable light and yet has condescended and made himself known to us. Christ Church San Antonio belongs to a God who at this very moment is actively working his grace, his mercy, his love, his purity, and his goodness and truth deep inside of each of our hearts. Christ Church belongs to the God who has promised that he will build his church. He will build it. And the gates of hell will not prevail. God loves this church. It is his and he is alive. With that knowledge, with insight into that amazing truth, we can begin to cultivate by God's grace, both gospel doctrine and gospel culture. When you get both of those together, the combination results 
in gospel power. I want to close just with this quote from Ray Ortland's book. Uh, I'm dependent on him a good bit in this sermon. I think it's a terrific book. And here's one thing he said that struck me. Listen to this as we conclude. Let me find the last page. Sorry. As the church of the living God, we have been miraculously converted. Formerly, God was a prop on the stage of our self-centered dramas. We might have wanted him, but not too much of him. We wanted to be forgiven and to go to heaven for sure. And we wanted him around when life became bad enough, but otherwise we preferred to be on our own. We were, in fact, allergic to God and alive to our own false ideals. Then everything changed. The Holy Spirit awakened us to see God in a new way, not as our last resort, but as our fountainhead. Down deep inside us now is a yearning for God that though we remain inconsistent, keeps drawing us back to him as our most heartfelt desire. And that yearning will never die. We share that heartbeat together in the church. That makes every faithful church a witness to a living God in a world full of dead idols. May Christ's church be in its future years by God's grace through us broken people a witness to the living and loving God in a world full of dead idols. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love for us in the gospel. Thank you that, um, thank you that you've sent Jesus to become a man and yet remain God, and that in his life he did what we failed to do. He always obeyed you. He trusted you fully. He was completely selfless all the time. And then he went to die. The only man who ever didn't deserve to die because the only man who didn't ever sin died. But he died not for his sin. No, he died for our sin. Father, we admit freely to you now that our lives are not as we would want them to be. We know that we make mistakes. We know that there is corruption inside of us. We know that oftentimes we are self-focused and self-centered. We know that we've made all sorts of attempts to change and do better, yet they continue to fall flat. Father, we know this about ourselves. And we thank you that you have provided change for us, a rescue for us, ransom for us, new life for us through Jesus. We thank you that it's his work that saves us, not our work. We thank you that because he has died for us, we're free. We're no longer condemned. We're no longer guilty. We no longer bear shame. We are your beloved children. We thank you, Father, that you collect us together as a church to go forth and proclaim this message, to talk to people about this message, and to love people in the name of this message, the gospel. May Christ Church more and more be a place where that is taking place. Father, we pray these things hopeful and thankful for what you're doing among us. In Jesus' name, amen.